Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the FISA blog and author of a special relationship, Trump Epstein, and the secret history of the Anglo American establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visaview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, visaview.blogspot.com. And procure a copy of A Special Relationship and my other works at The Farm's official store, which is at thefarmpodcast.store. And please consider signing up for The Farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. All right, before we get rolling here, I wanted to uh, make a personal announcement as uh, this is the first show uh, I have uh, recorded since I was uh, made aware of uh, some rather unfortunate news. Uh, Lord Hugh R. Doombar, who I had the uh, great pleasure of interviewing last year in the spring and uh, who I had recently appeared on his uh thing for his extinction uh sort of setup uh passed away uh in february 17th um for those of you who were uh, fortunate enough to hear lord hugh or um any of the numerous videos that he left on youtube i would urge you to do so uh man had a truly unique perspective of the world and um yeah it's uh a heavy loss. Uh, the world is a lesser place without Lord Hugh uh, in it. So okay, I, I, I offer my condolences to his family and um, all of his supporters out there. He was a great guy. And in uh, the time that I did get to know him, I am all the better a man for it. All right. So on a less somber note, today's guest is making his first appearance on the farm. He is going by the name of Philip Jeffries for this outing. I'm sure many of you listening are well aware of what that is a reference to, but if not, hint, look into Twin Peaks and you will figure that one out pretty quickly. All right, so some of you may have visited, uh, you may have uh, noted him on some of the various Discord servers for a while. He's been dropping by there, but regardless, I'm happy to have him on tonight. So thank you for joining us, Philip. Hey, Stephen. Good evening. All right, sir. I'm super excited for today's show. Ever since I took over the farm, I have been wanting to do a deep dive into the history of cybernetics. Now, longtime listeners know the importance I place upon this particular topic. It is simply impossible to understand the modern world and things presently unfolding without cropping cybernetics. So, it is with great pleasure that Philip and I are going to unpack this oh-so-crucial subject, and we're probably, or at least I am going to butcher a lot of Eastern European names in uh, the uh, process of this, so grammar police, be aware. All right, this is going to be epic otherwise, so let us get going. All right, Philip. One of the really interesting things I learned from you is that, roughly speaking, cybernetics is not a modern concept. In fact, the first references to it can be found all the way back in Plato's Republic. 
Could you briefly get into that for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and uh, contrary to popular opinion that Plato was an altruistic architect of our modern form of Republican government is the fact that his Republic is in many ways the blueprint for crowd control with top-down control coming from philosopher kings, which by the way, also shows the influence of the occult in politics with that concept of enlightened rulers who dole out the information to the rest of us plebes as they see fit. So it's, the modern world is not unlike the priest class of the ancient world. So probably most telling is the famously enduring allegory of the cave, which is starkly comparative to our modern world. Uh, in the tale, prisoners are chained by their neck in a cave so as not to be able to observe their fellow prisoners. They're chained side by side. They cannot see what's happening behind them. Uh, or even themselves. Uh, behind them, shadows are cast on the wall in front of them in a type of puppet show pantomime by their captors from out of view so that their entire reality is subject to the control of those literally behind the scenes. So if anyone ever managed to escape and return to attempt to free their fellows, this prisoner, whose eyes have become accustomed to the sunlight, would be blind when he re-enters the cave, just as he was when he was first exposed to the sun. So the prisoners, according to Plato, would infer from the returning man's blindness that the journey out of the cave had harmed him and that they should not undertake a similar journey. So Plato concludes that the prisoners, if they were able, would therefore reach out and kill anyone who attempted to drag them out of the cave. So this coincides with the modern phenomenon, phenomenon excuse me, of the ostracization that occurs to anyone who thinks outside the lines, anyone who dares to question the narrative put forth by the mainstream media or the government. The old familiar bludgeon of conspiracy theorists gets used to shut down anyone thinking outside the accepted narrative with fairly consistent results as the online trolls and opinion watchdogs bark you back into silent submission. So the word itself, cybernetics, was first used in the context of the study of self-governance by Plato in Republic and in, I'm gonna butcher this, Alciabiades, that's Greek, uh, to signify the governance of people. So when Plato talks self-governance, I take that to mean the ship of state. And it's set up to be a self-correcting system, not the more modern libertarian or anarcho-capitalist philosophy of literally governing your life as you see fit. So the term stems from the Greek word kybernetes, sometimes called spelled kubernetes, K-U-B-E-R-N-E-T-E-S. And this word denotes uh, a rudder, uh, a rudder man, a steersman, or a skipper. Uh, the Latin form was gubernetes, or later gubernator. These and related words in other languages are rooted in the Greek word kybernetikos, which means good at steering. So the precise concept uh, translates to 
Netic Techni, which is the art of the helmsman. This was the term favored by Aristotle. Uh, more specifically, techni means art, from which we get the word technology. So Aristotle insisted that techni implied not mere knowledge or skill, but teleological or goal-oriented activity. So to Aristotle, in short, governance was not an art, was, it was an art, not a science. So cybernetics shares the same root as the word governance, and contrary to popular notions, has relatively little to do with computer-aided, internet-mediated machinery and institutions. It has everything to do with thought-aided, purpose-directed, history-illuminated, feedback-dependent, and future-affirming or feed-forward governance. Uh, so this gets into technique and technology concepts of the French author Jacques Ellul. He put forth several excellent books on the subject and how modern technology has become a total phenomenon for civilization, the defining force of a new social order in which efficiency is no longer an option, but a necessity imposed on all human activity. He said technology was regarded now as sacred instead of nature. He understood that technique and technology are associated with consumerism and entertainment and that they lead ultimately to totalitarianism. He has many fascinating critiques of technology that still hold their value today, uh, now more than ever. Um, I, I really want to devote myself to reading his books cover to cover. I admit I have, I've cherry-picked a lot of the passages that suit my needs. But um, as an example of how telling his work can be, uh, I, I picked a few, cherry-picked a few quotes. Uh, we are in the inescapable grip of a high-tech anaconda, <laughs> is one. That this is to be a dictatorship of test tubes rather than hobnail boots will not make it any less of a dictatorship. So Elul is he's one of a small minority of writers and thinkers uh, who've been sounding alarm over encroaching tech tyranny uh, for uh, on, onwards of a century now, it includes C.S. Lewis, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, Franz Kafka, and, and more recently, Philip K. Dick. Um, but perhaps the most Telling modern alarm bell was the landmark year 2000 article entitled Why the Future Doesn't Need Us by Bill Joy and published in Wired magazine, uh, which comes up again uh, later in our discussion. Um, he goes into yeah, depth as Wired is the mouthpiece of the whole, you know, cybernetics movement, basically. <laughs> Absolutely. When Stuart Brand rears his head later on, we'll, <laughs> we'll talk more, <laughs> but for sure. Um, so in that article, he goes into depth as to how once that most labor-intensive jobs are done by robots and the masses have become superfluous, a useless burden on the system, that if, if the elites decide to be ruthless, they'll mostly, most likely exterminate the mass of humanity. <laughs> If they're humane, they may use propaganda or other psychological or biological techniques to reduce the birth rate 
until the mass of humanity becomes extinct, leaving the world to them. That's my belief. I'm, a, you know, I have a very conspiratorial mind, but I think we're most likely in the early stages of this plan because we're seeing birth rates crater all over the world, but the overpopulation meme is still floated as an undeniable fact. Uh, the fact that I hear both of my millennial daughters about this constantly <laughs> indicates to me that the propaganda is working. They've, they've captured the conversation among the youth. Oh, that's often how this kind of stuff operates. Um, mm -hmm. Targeting them young is uh, always imperative. And uh, oh. I think that's kind of why we also see the ongoing obsession with trying to um, eliminate the family effectively. Uh, but we can uh, for sure probably get in some more of that good stuff here a little later on. Oh, okay. no doubt. Okay, so a kind of proto version of uh, you know what we would kind of think of now, maybe as cybernetics, was developed in Poland during the 19th century by a man named Bronislaw Trentowski. So there you go. <laughs> all right, that was, that was hopefully at least passable. Okay, so tell us a bit about this gentleman and take up the uh, the using of the name, sir. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. So Trentowski, he's a bit of an impenetrable figure to me, as his his book on the relation of philosophy to cybernetics or the art of governing a nation is not available in English. What we do know about him is that he was one of the earliest proponents of a national philosophy, which can be seen as evolving into what we now know today as nationalism, which is a double-edged sword when it's used to either unify or tear apart the national fabric based on uh, not being patriotic enough. He was also a Freemason. I, I try to avoid the mental trap of instantly blackballing someone's character based on that association. I have lifelong friends who are members and whose character I personally can attest to, but. I also know how compartmentalization works. So their Blue Lodge status most likely does not translate to knowing many inner circle type secrets. Okay, so Trintowski uh, was part of a Polish spiritual movement called uh, Mezzanism, I believe. Not only were there uh, some very interesting figures in this movement, but uh, it appears to have had a, a considerable influence on Western esotericism. Can you tell us a bit about it? Sure, absolutely. Um, um, uh, I, I struggle with this one as well. Messianism, uh, it originated as an Abrahamic religious belief, but other, other religions have uh, Messiah-based concepts, uh, such as, you know, obviously Judaism, Christianity, Islam, uh, the Hansa faith, Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, uh, Judaism. Um, of course, in Islam, Jesus was a prophet and the Messiah of the Jewish people who will return in the end times. But Messianism is interesting in that with Trentowski, we also have the national philosophy aspect of his belief system. So if you marry the two, you get the formula for nearly every modern American political figure. And we see it on both sides of the aisle. Most, not, most notably with the, the near apotheosis of both Obama and Trump before they even served a day in office, not to mention the selective amnesia their followers have in the wake of their poor policy decisions. 
but it's pretty consistent across the political spectrum. You name, you know, Bernie, Hillary, AOC, I, I guess even Biden to a lesser extent. He was certainly seen as the antidote to Trump. But these parties have thousands of elected officials countrywide. But the attention always seems to focus on whoever top dog in the party is at the moment, as if they are the embodiment of the party, almost like a messiah. So it's it's almost always a recipe for it's not always it is it's always a recipe for disaster because ultimately they're just people and subject to failure. Okay, so break down uh, Trent uh, Twowski's concept of cybernetics and how it differs from the modern version. Sure. Uh, so it was, when it was first coined, he was uh, teaching school in Podlasi. Then he fought as an Ulan in the Polish November. 1830 to 31 uprising. After the suppression, he went to Germany, settled in Freiburg in Baden, developed an interest in philosophy, became an assistant professor, and he was there until the end of his life. Um, so he published his first work in 1837 in German, but wrote only in Polish, as I mentioned. Um, I would like to state if anyone hearing this comes across an English version of Trentowski's book, I would be very interested in getting my hands on that. Um, I have only been able to find a few quotes in some cybernetic journals that have been translated. Um, uh, where was I? I'm sorry. Uh, oh, so the chief object of his philosophy was universality. So it's an emergence from one-sided solutions. So one-sided to him were realism and idealism, objective and subjective points of view, experience and mind, empirical and metaphysical knowledge. So he thought he sought to go beyond these antithesis to a synthesis. So he judged Messianism severely and uh, rejected any connection with German philosophy. Um, he was very taken with German Hegelianism and in his later writings, also with the Messianist national ideology. The union of these two elements constituted the fabric of his personal philosophy. So there's no better illustration of this social dimension's relevance than the fact that the writers first employing the label cybernetics over a century before Wiener, such as Trentowski, did so with respect to social rather than mechanical regulation, as we'll get into when uh, we talk more about the 20th century titans of cybernetics. But following the writings that Wiener put forth later in his career, I would say that both the former and the latter were both talking about the same thing, just using different terminology. So Trentowski, uh, I learned, actually coined the term intelligentsia. So he took, undertook a study of similarly grandiose scope. He, uh, in this case, the subject was coordination or unification of all human activities under the direction of a manager. Trentowski foresaw this manager as having to be transdisciplinary because no single discipline covered the range of knowledge requisite to such a task. His vision was documented in an 1843 volume titled Cybernetica, subtitled The Relation of Philosophy to Cybernetics or the Art of How to Govern a Nation, as we discussed earlier. Uh, and uh, again, if anyone can get their hands on the digital version, I would be extremely interested. 
All right, so there were a few other proto versions uh, kicking around by the early 20th century uh, from the likes of Andre Maria Empere and Louis Kovtio. But praying to God that was at least remotely close. Uh, what did they bring to the table? So in the early 19th century, Andre Ampere, he was already noted in physics for his research on electricity, embarked on an effort to classify and categorize all human knowledge in terms of sciences. We're starting to sense a running theme here. This led to his 1834 volume. In it, he returned to the steersman metaphor invoked by both Plato and Aristotle and created the modern term cybernetique to denote his envisioned science of government or the art of government. So over a century later, after Wiener's recycling the metaphor in a different context, cybernetique resurfaced as the French translation uh, into English of cybernetics. So Ampere viewed cybernetics as people-to-people -people relations. He studied in uh, two sciences, ethnicity and diplomacy but saw them as small parts of the objects over which good government must watch. Uh, the balance being the maintenance of public order, execution of laws, fair distribution of taxes, choice of men to be employed, and all that can contribute to the improvement of the social state. Uh, his attempt, um, he constantly has to choose among various measures, the one which is best suited to attain the goal. And it is only by the in-depth and compared study of various elements provides him for this choice the knowledge of all that relates to the nation which he governs, to its character, its moorings, its opinions, history, religion, its means of existence and prosperity, its organization and laws, uh, which guide it in each particular case. And it is only after all the sciences which deal with these various objects that we must place that which is in question here and which I call cybernetics which taken first in a restricted sense for the art of governing a vessel received through use among the Greeks, even the meaning quite differently, the art of governing in general. So Copenhagen was a bit more contemporary, integrating his existing pre-war theories, comparing the functioning of the nervous system and that of machines. And this was going on as uh, Wiener was preparing his book on cybernetics, the book that established modern foundations of the subject. Between 1938 and 1960, Copenhagen was the director of the Blase Pascal Calculation Center. So in 1945, he was named Inspector General of Public Teaching. In 51, he prepared an international conference on thinking machines, and he brought together the greatest specialists in the new science, including Norbert Wiener, W. Ross Ashby, Warren McCullough, and others. Uh, as the Inspector General of France, he created the first uh, BTS teaching degree in France, so rather accomplished young. All right, so uh, let's segue a bit more into contemporary times then. All right, so a crucial component of cybernetics is feedback, a concept developed slightly before the cybernetics notion proper. So first go over feedback for us. Sure, so feedback occurs when outputs of a system are routed back as inputs as part of a chain of cause and effect, it forms a circuit or a loop. The system can then be said to feed back into itself. 
So the notion of cause and effect, excuse me, has to be uh, handled carefully when applied to feedback systems. So self-regulating mechanism have, mechanisms have existed since antiquity. The idea of feedback had started to enter economic theory in Britain by the 18th century, but it was not at that time recognized as a universal abstraction, and so it didn't have a name yet. The first ever artificial feedback device was a float valve for maintaining water at a constant level. It's invented in 270 BC in Alexandria, Egypt. The device illustrated the principle of feedback. Low water level opens the valve, rising water then provides feedback into the system, closes the valve when the required level is reached. This then reoccurs in a circular fashion as the water level fluctuates. So centrifugal governors were used to regulate the distance and pressure between millstones and windmills in the 17th century. In 1788, James Watt designed the first centrifugal governor uh, following a suggestion from his business partner, Matthew Bolton, for use in steam engines. So early steam engines employed a purely reciprocating motion and were used for pumping water, an application that could tolerate variations in the working speed, but the use of speed steam engines for other applications called for more precise control of speed. In a modern context, it's, it's always been a pet theory of mine that social media networks act as self-regulating systems and that any foreign or uncomfortable line of thought is met en masse by ridicule and ostracization, effectively chasing the offender off to lick their wounds and contemplate if it's even worth to have, have opinions online. So even those who persist are usually herded into echo chambers of like-minded others where their difference of opinion has very little effect. Yeah, it's an interesting parallel with the uh, with social media, certainly. And I mean, I think that's... Um... You know that was intentional i mean it's really become a great way uh to reinforce ideology on so many levels with this uh just you know rather brutal bombardment of feedback loops that can be generated by it oh for certain for certain it's one thing i, I mean i've spent my time on social media absolutely and discord basically is a large echo chamber but I mean, that's where I'm most comfortable. But, you know, when I first landed on Facebook in 2013, um, you know, I, I, I thought I had my own radio show. I was like posting all this you know, stuff, trying to wake people up. And oh, boy, did I ever regret that in a hurry. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, now I kind of stick to my own, you know, but. Yeah, no, I've always kind of uh, tactfully uh, avoided putting much of anything political on uh, Facebook. I never really thought that it was uh, worth it based on the experiences I was uh, seeing that others were having from it. Hmm. To be certain. Yep. All right. So information theory is also a crucial building block. So what of it, Philip? Uh, so information theory is concerned with the mathematical laws governing the transmission, reception, and processing of information. So more specifically, it deals with the numerical measurement of information, uh, such as encoding and the capacity of communication systems to transmit and process information. So encoding can refer to the transformation of speech or images into electric or electromagnetic signals or to the encoding of messages to ensure privacy. Information theory was developed in 1948 by American electrical engineer and uh, 
Macy conference member called Shannon. The need for a theoretical basis of communication technology arose from the increasing complexity and crowding of communication channels such as telephone and teletype networks and radio communication system. So information theory also encompasses you know, other forms of information transmissions and storage, including television, electrical pulses transmitted computers, and uh, magnetic and optical data recording. So Shannon noted certain features, such as redundancy, which reduce errors and occur in natural information systems, such as the genome or human languages. Some of these same systems are used in today's electronics uh, communications and media technologies to preserve the signal and reduce noise. So when he and uh, Wiener, Norbert Wiener came to realize what they came to realize is that the relationship between information and entropy is as direct as that between matter and energy. So if the system can be described by a certain number of statements, clearly a more ordered system requires a more complex description than a more disordered system. So its information content is inversely related to entropy. Through communication and information exchange with other systems, an open system can raise its information content and reduce its entropy. Um, so of course, another feature uh, of information uh, theory is metadata. So you, you gotta put all those emails, text messages, and uh, you know, if the legend is true, even deleted Facebook messages somewhere, which obviously is not a perfect system, still takes up a lot of room. I mean, it requires that monolith building that the NSA has in Utah that uses more resources than a small city. So I guess data takes up a lot of room still and produces a lot of heat. So yeah, thank you, Intel community. I feel safe. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that uh, that whole data center, something else had been uh, by it, actually. Um, oh, man. Oh, really? Ooh. Oh, yeah. What's well, in the Salt Lake City area? I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, just kind of crazy stuff in that whole region. Right. So. I, you made a field trip out there last year, right? As... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going back out this spring, too. So Interesting. Nice. Uh, I, I really want to get out there. I had a couple of friends moved out there um, a couple of years back, and uh, it just looks like amazing country. Yeah, of course, there's a lot to look into while you're there. Too. It's a one-of-a-kind place, that is for sure. <laughs> mm. <laughs> All right, so you cite the technocracy movement as another crucial influence. So break that down for us. Yeah, sure. Um, so this is an earlier cousin to the later established field of cybernetics uh, was the technocracy movement. So the term, uh, it comes from that Greek word techni, meaning skill and uh, kratos, meaning power, as in governance or rule. So William Henry Smythe, he was a Californian engineer. He's usually credited with inventing the word technocracy. Um, in 1919, uh, he coined the term to describe the rule of the people made effective through the agency of their servants, the scientists and the engineers. Although the word had been used before on several occasions. Uh, Smythe had used the term in uh, an earlier uh, article that same year, Technocracy, Ways and Means to Gain Industrial Democracy uh, in the journal Industrial uh, Management. So his uh, usage referred to industrial democracy. 
movement to integrate workers into making decisions through existing firms, uh, uh, like a type of uh, peaceful revolution. Then the 30s, the influence of a man named Howard Scott in the technocracy movement he officially founded, the term came to mean government like technical decision making. So using an energy metric of value. So Scott proposed that money be replaced by energy certificates denominated in units such as herbs or jewels, equivalent to total amount, in total amount to an appropriate national net energy budget, and then distributed equally among the North American population, according to resource scalability. Uh, so this actually gained uh, quite a bit of popularity in the, during the Depression uh, out West. Um, you know what, I should have sent you that image. There's a fam famous image of um, uh, Harold Smith at the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, it's you know filled to capacity, standing room only, with people from you know the LA area that had come to hear him speak on technocracy. Um, so before the term was coined, uh, the ideas involving governance by technical experts were promoted by various individuals. So most notably, you know, socialist theorists like Henri de Saint Simon. Uh, a lot of Frenchmen in, <laughs> in our talk tonight. Uh, so this was expressed by the belief in state ownership over the economy, with the function of the state being transformed from one of pure philosophical rule over men into a scientific administration of things and a direction of processes or production under scientific management. So uh, according to Daniel Bell, author, uh, St. Simone's vision of industrial society, a vision of pure technocracy, was a system of planning and rational order in which society would specify its needs and organize the factors of production to achieve them. So citing the ideas of St. Simon, Bell comes to the conclusion that the administration of things by rational judgment is the hallmark of technocracy. Probably the most modern enduring image or symbol of technocracy is the smart meter. Uh, it's so that uh, literally that your outpower uh, usage can be monitored remotely by, uh, you know, like the electric company. But if, if that was ever nationalized, it would be the government. And, um, you know, the dream of technocracy is to, you know, you will only be able to spend whatever social credits you have earned to use the amount of power uh, that's available to you. So, um, you know, I, I have nightmares about, you know, running out of social credits in the middle of winter or um, uh, even something as basic as a hot shower turning cold all of a sudden because, you know, you, you didn't earn enough credits that month or used up too much. So it's, it's kind of a terrifying thought. Yeah, and I mean, we're already seeing, you know, the social credit system starting to roll out in uh, the People's uh, yeah. Republic of China right now. And um, absolutely, you know, yeah. you can kind of see uh, hints at how it could be implemented um, in the third season of Westworld, uh, which oh, yeah. certainly show also that uh, it's heavily influenced uh, by cybernetic principles is really... Uh, littered throughout and uh oh for sure fantastic season fantastic yeah. i i loved it yeah absolutely. of course i loved it in a way because it made me so un uncomfortable but now that's the point of good entertainment is to make you think 
yeah absolutely and it uh it um, actually kind of seems like it's more prophetic uh every what six months or so I suppose. <laughs> yep sure does sure does all right so another interesting influence in the technocracy movement appears to have been the russian alexander uh bogdanyevov bogdanyevov who is often uh, considered a cosmetist as well. So could you touch on uh, Bogdanovov and his influence for a moment? Sure. So he was a, a Russian scientist and a social theorist, and he also anticipated the conception of the technocratic process. So he wrote both fiction and uh, political writings. Uh, they were highly influential. Uh, they suggest that he expected a coming revolution against capitalism to lead to a technocratic society. So from 1913 till 1922, uh, he immersed himself in the writing of a lengthy philosophical treatise of original ideas, which he called Tectology, Universal Organization Science. So Tectology anticipated many basic ideas of systems analysts, which was later explored at, uh, in depth by cybernetics. Uh, so technology is a term used by him to describe a new universal science that consisted of unifying all social, biological, and physical science, and by considering them as systems of relationships and by seeking the organizational principles that underlie all systems. Basically, the definition of cybernetics. So cosmism, the cosmism, if I'm saying that right, is a philosophical and cultural movement that emerged in Russia at the turn of the 19th century, and then it uh, again, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was a burst of, of scientific exuberance uh, and investigation into interplanetary travel, but largely driven by fiction writers, such as Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, uh, as well as philosophical movements like Cosmism. Um, so Cosmism entailed a broad theory of natural philosophy, combining elements of religion, ethics, history of philosophy, the origin, evolution, future existence of the cosmos and humankind. It also combined elements from both Eastern and Western philosophic traditions, as well as the Russian Orthodox Church. So many ideas of the Russian cosmos were later developed by those in the transhumanist movement. Uh, so Victor Skumin, he argues that uh, he, he advocated for the, the um, development of a culture of health, which will play an important role in the creation of a human spiritual society as humanity branches out into the solar system. Uh, so this is kind of a, a topic for another day, but they go hand in hand is transhumanism uh, or H plus as the movement now calls itself. So it's, it's a descendant and cousin of cybernetics uh, and uh, Cosmism in many ways uh, in tautology. Uh, but as I said, it's a subject for another time. It, get, it gets heavy right from the start. Um, you know, you have British geneticist and eugenicist JB, JBS Haldine before it was named as a movement. It gained steam with Julian Huxley and UNESCO. It's really picked up in recent years with the interest from the PayPal mafia crew like Musk and Thiel, who, you know, I've actually learn some very extensive and interesting facts by listening to the farm. So thank you for that. So make no mistake that transhumanism is the ultimate end game with all this. 
and whether they achieve their dream of immortality or not, we will probably never know. We will be sold on the idea that tech makes everything better, even us. But once we start to once we start down that path, you know, there's no going back. Um, Musk stated, you know, in his Rogan interview that we're already cyborgs because of cell phones. And, you know, honestly, it could be argued that we've been cyborgs since the first human picked up a stick and used it to extend their reach. Uh, the invention of eyeglasses is sometimes seen as an aspect of transhumanism as a prosthetic lens. But the difference is that these accoutrements are on the exterior, not the interior. Yeah, it is uh, certainly fascinating to see some of these developments. And, um, you know, it's also worth pointing out, too, that Russia has kind of its own um, <clears throat> fascinating history with cybernetics as well. Um, sure. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I could, I think in some ways, you know, I mean, when it comes to things like transhumanism or, you know, related ideologies like cosmetism and extropianism and so forth, you see a bit of the... Uh, the east and the west kind of gaslighting one another which is uh, pushed forward a lot of these ideologies to the forefront of uh, a lot of the philosophical digressions uh, for certain courses rather i should say <clears throat> all right so let's get into uh norbert wiener now and his concept of cybernetics proper sure so the true primal beast of modern computing is the interactive gunsight system. So it's an artillery gizmo, it's viewed tracer fire across the dark skies of the Second World War. So our protagonist here is not Alan Turing, who gets you know a lot of the glory still to this day, but Norbert Wiener. He was an academic at MIT at the time, and he was researching anti-aircraft weapons. Wiener sought to mathematically automate a new prediction and aiming system so that the allied ACAC gunners could outguess dive-bombing Axis pilots, not unlike a duck hunter anticipating the flight of his quarry. So he had no engineering success whatsoever. Meanwhile, all the truly capable MIT guys were away building atom bombs in the desert. But then peace broke out, and Wiener revealed his new general theory of humanly interactive yet self-steering machines. He called it cybernetics. So trendsetters quickly picked up and, and spread the idea. And uh, early in the community, it was made up of peacenik left-wing intellectuals who were really dumbfounded by the A-bomb. So Bertrand Russell considered Wiener a moral titan. He was actually his, uh, I guess he was his, uh, Wiener was his protege. He was, he was a child prodigy who actually graduated from Harvard at 16, I think, and he was sent to Oxford to study under Russell. Um, so Wiener got a rather favorable hearing from the Soft Science Brigade, who realized that cybernetic feedback was Darwin-scale high concept. It was an intellectual gift that would keep on giving. So as a working technology, it, cybernetics actually reached its peak before any digital computers even appeared. Um, so, um, the thing is these, uh, far from being the parents of our modern computers, although other members of, uh, the Macy conferences, which Wiener took part in can be considered that, 
these early attempts at cybernetics can you know be more seen as the father of our current weapon systems uh but gadgets like the the uh, obscure ashby homeostat so time magazine said it was the closest thing to a synthetic brain so far designed by man uh they had a a kind of mid-century beauty to them if you watch the old black and white films they move about mysteriously they're like mobiles steering through the breeze but the original pre-digital cybernetics was conceptually akin to a vital fluid a mathematical uh, uh lubricant that could manage living organisms complex mechanisms human intelligence and well pretty much anything it was seen as a the science of science so it certainly had the mythic power to be prefixed to pretty much anything which is it's why our world now rejoices in cyber everything cyber bombs cyber bullying cyber coins cyber cops cyber crime yeah you know you name it it's been used to death and it uh it did really have though that that long-standing kind of connection with the computer, of course. Um, another influence on Wiener was uh, Vannevar Bush, uh, who was also his contemporary, yeah. I believe, at Harvard and then later at MIT. Of course, Bush, uh, the head of the National Defense Research Council during the Second World War, which uh, the MIT Rad Lab was a part of. And um, also, too, it should probably be pointed out, MIT was really not um considered a major university per se prior to the second world war but uh bush had been the dean i think in the uh, the run-up to the second world war and um he had lavished uh, the university with a lot of grant or a lot of funding uh during the second world war which really increased its capacities and that only continued uh, as the cold war set in and of course, um, the successor to the Rad Lab, which uh, we never been a part of, uh, was the uh, the Lincoln Lab uh, that came about in the early 1950s, which was again, you know, centered around radar. In this case, you know, for air defense uh, for the United States in the event of uh, the Soviet Union trying to launch a preemptive strike. Uh, it was an interesting thing. The the system they built it was uh sage that was an acro um, an abbreviation for something that i cannot remember off the top of my head but the the sage system was uh, groundbreaking in a lot of ways because it was uh one of the first times that we had really used uh computers for predictive modeling for a large-scale project of that nature because they would have to theoretically predict where some of the bomb runs of the uh hypothetical soviet fighter pilots and uh, bombers and so forth would have gone for so that's another interesting aspect about that and then uh some of the uh, people tied to lincoln laboratories ended up uh, drifting into dar or excuse me at the time arpa uh, during the 1960s and helped set up uh, what would eventually become the ARPANET and then later the internet. Of course, the most notable figure uh, of these guys was J.C.R. Licklider, who uh, was a contemporary of Norbert Weiner and was quite taken with cybernetics uh, when, it, when the movement originally began. So, and I mean, some of the other guys you've talked about, Claude Shannon, I mean, he was another guy who was kind of part of this milieu. Um, you know, really that whole area around Cambridge, Massachusetts was just so significant to all of this. And, uh, you know, even though we think a lot of it, uh, you know, being out on the West Coast with SRI and 
that kind of thing. I mean, it really did kind of get its start uh, in old Massachusetts uh, before gravitating out west. And uh, yeah, I mean, sure. it kind of, um, you know, grew out of this sort of earlier cybernetics movement that uh, hadn't quite revolution, or at least, you know, it's kind of interesting. I mean, we always sort of hear about how the cybernetics movement petered out by what the 50s, the early 60s or something, but it's it's basically everywhere in house. So it's kind of like trip hop, you know, it, uh, it, it yeah. theoretically <laughs> petered out at the end of the 90s, but it's just kind of everywhere. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a lot like the new age movement. It yeah. was uh, seen as, you know, different and unusual. And now housewives do yoga and <laughs> burn incense and crystals and you name it, the, the secret. And, you know, it's gone, it's gone mainstream. Yeah. And, you know, we'll get into this in a little bit, but it's important to understand. I mean, some of the big woo-woo stuff that influenced the counterculture, especially a lot of this you know, stuff related to like ESP, I mean, came out of... Uh, the cybernetics movement as well but like i said that that we'll get to in just a little bit here oh yeah All right. i actually read a really interesting quote uh just a couple hours ago about the rad lab so i knew bush's involvement i i didn't realize that he created the the memex which was the early oh, yeah, prototype yeah. of the arpanet mm-hmm. and he set that up at the rad lab where wiener worked for him yeah so if cybernetics was born at the macy conferences it was conceived at the rad lab yeah basically i mean i've always thought vanivar bush probably deserved a lot because vanivar bush was the first one who really became fixated with the whole notion of the man machine symbiosis which is at the heart of uh cybernetics i mean in general and that you know certainly is something that's made a remarkable comeback i mean if you you know look around you see a lot of talk about man machine symbiosis nowadays it's you know kind of everywhere but uh vanivar bush uh, was one of the major uh early proponents of that and he probably uh deserves far more credit uh for the direction a lot of this has taken than he's generally given for better or for worse um but okay so so you see the first law of cybernetics to be especially significant so first like what can you tell us about it and then how does it relate to modern concepts such as the nudge theory sure well the first law of cybernetics is also known as the law of requisite variety and this originates from within systems theory states that the person with the most behavioral flexibility will ultimately control the system an easier way to Look at that is that the unit is us. (laughs) The behavioral responses are how we react and plan what we do and say. System is the environment in all respects. The people that represent the world that you seek to succeed within. And control is the choice that we are able to exercise in achieving what we want, whatever that may be. So, Ross Ashby actually uh, coined the term, uh, the law of requisite variety. And it denotes to a number of distinguishable elements of a set or a state, a set of states, inputs or outputs of a, of a finite machine or transformation. So the unit within the system, again, with the most behavioral responses available to it, controls the system. 
So cybernetics is it's very relevant to nudge theory. So that's a powerful change management methodology that emerged in the 2000s. Uh, uh, so yeah, to look at it uh, as a you know rather easy way is the first law has massive significance understanding and developing greater self-determination, greater understanding, the tolerance of responses to situations and people around us, which are all central for our ability to interact and respond effectively within work and beyond. So the first law of cybernetics is arguably one of the most powerful maxims for living a happy, productive, and successful life. Of course, success is a matter for personal interpretation, but cybernetics can provide the key to achieving it, whatever your interpretation might be. So it is a very, very powerful concept. Uh, in a way, cybernetics is the science of thoughtful choice over instinct. I hope I answered your question. <laughs> oh no, very well put, Philip, very well put. All right, so let's get into Lewis Mumford's notion of the mega machine or simply the quote machine break it down for right. us so Mum Mumford was uh, the more I read about him I just he was just a good guy <laughs> he was just a visionary he could he could see he was one of those people who could just see for miles and miles he could see the abuse of technology years in advance so he refers to large hierarchical systems as mega machines, a machine that uses humans as its components. So these organizations characterize his stage theory of civilization. So the most recent mega machine manifests itself, according to him, in technocratic nuclear powers. So Mumford used the example of the Soviet Union and the U.S. power complexes represented by the Kremlin and the Pentagon. Uh, he said that Builders of the pyramids, you know, the Romans, uh, the armies of the world wars, they're prior examples. But he explains the meticulous attention to accounting and standardization, elevation of military leaders to divine status, their spontaneous features of mega machines throughout history. So he cites such examples as the repetitive nature of Egyptian paintings, which feature enlarged pharaohs, public display of enlarged photos of communist leaders like Mao Zedong and Stalin. Uh, he also cites the overwhelming prevalence of quant quantitative accounting records among surviving historical records from you know, Egypt to, Ger to Nazi Germany. So necessary the construction of these mega machines is an enormous bureaucracy of humans which act as survey units working without ethical involvement. So according to Mumford, technological improvements like the assembly line or instant global wireless communication and remote control can easily weaken the perennial psychological barrier to certain types of questionable actions. So an example which he uses is that of Adolf Eichmann, Nazi official who organized logistics in support of the Holocaust. So Mumford collectively refers to people willing to carry out placidly the extreme goals of the mega machines as Eichmanns. <laughs> um, I'm not familiar. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the short stories of Clive Barker, but he he has a good one that I always think of when I'm thinking or talking about mega machines. It's called In the Hills, the Cities. It was in the first of the Books of Blood short stories that he did, and um, it, it features two towns that form 
massive towering giants entirely composed of their populations. <laughs> the people like willingly climb into these giant wicker man type structures and they like battle each other like King Kong and Godzilla. So, I mean, it's a little bit on the news in regard to metaphor for the mega machine, but I, I just think it's very telling and well-formed. I actually just spent 60 bucks to buy a full set of the books of blood comics because I had them as a teenager. I just love that one. I must have read it a thousand times. And I had the print copies as well. But um, anyway, um, the clock, Mumford saw this as the herald of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, he, uh, one of the better known studies of his is the way it was developed by monks, the mechanical clock in the Middle Ages, uh, and subsequently adopted by the rest of society. So he, he viewed this device as the key invention of the whole Industrial Revolution. Uh, contrary to the common view that the steam engine holds that position. He said the clock, not the steam engine, is the key to the modern industrial age. The clock is a piece of power machinery whose product is seconds and minutes. That just gives me chills when I read that. It's, it's one of those statements that gives you pause to reflect on the fact that uh, what what mechanized humanity more than the clock? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it really created a, an artificial concept of time and broke us out of the, uh, the natural cycles of nature. Uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely a very uh, profound uh, statement. Yeah, Mumford's the man. <clears throat> All right, so typically cybernetics is associated with militarism. But more often than not, it's been supported by the left. Uh, one of the most striking instances of this was Allende's Chile. Uh, what can you tell us about Project Cybersyn? Uh, is that what it is, Philip? Yeah, this this was um, kind of well-intentioned, but it, it, it basically birthed the big data nation. Uh, so Stafford Beer, um, yet again, another Macy's conference member, uh, he had been brought in by Chile's top planners, Chile, I'm sorry, top planners, to help guide the country down with Salvador Allende. He was their democratically elected Marxist leader. He was calling the Chilean road to socialism. So Beer was a leading theorist of cybernetics. Uh, as, we, as we know, a discipline born of mid-century efforts to understand the role of communication in controlling social, biological, and technical systems. Chile's government had a lot to control. Allende had just taken office in November 1970, swiftly nationalized the country's key industries, and he promised worker participation in the planning process. So Beer's mission was to deliver a hypermodern information system that would make this possible, and so bring socialism into the computer age. And the system he devised had a gleaming sci-fi name, Project CyberSign. So it was a a Chilean project from 71 to 73. So it was during Allende's term is aimed at constructing a distributed decision support system to aid in the management of the national economy. The CyberSign was based on viable system model theory and a neural network approach to organizational design. Featured innovative technology for its time, included a network of telex machines, CyberNet, and state-run enterprises that would transmit and receive information for the government in Santiago. Information from the field would be fed into statistical modeling software, 
uh, called Cyber Stride that would monitor production indicators, such as raw material supplies, higher rates of worker absenteeism, etc. So in real time, and oh, in real time, excuse me, and alert the workers in the first case and in abnormal situations, also the central government. So if there's, if you know, any of these parameters fell outside acceptable ranges. So in 71, Stafford Beer was contacted by uh, Fernando Flores, who is a high level employee of the Chilean Production Development Corporation for advice on incorporating his theories of cybernetics into the management of the newly nationalized sector of Chile's economy. So Beer saw this as an opportunity, unique opportunity to implement his ideas of cybernetic management on a national scale. He also sympathized with the stated ideals of Chilean socialism, which aimed to maintain Chile's democratic system and the autonomy of workers instead of imposing a Soviet-style system of top-down command and control. So more than just offering advice, Beer stepped aside uh, for most of his other uh, consulting business and devoted a great deal of time to what became Project CyberSign. However, <laughs> the best laid plans of mice and men uh, didn't work so good. And a military coup occurred on uh, oops, September 11th, 1973. So CyberSign was abandoned and you know all the operation room hubs were destroyed. Yes, I have been curious about what had happened with that after Pinochet came to power. Interesting. Because <clears throat> again, a lot of these uh, kind of computer systems were used so much for U.S. counterinsurgency things during Vietnam and uh, that whole era as well. In fact, they Have had you ever read uh, The Pentagon's Brain? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. By Andy Jacobs. Yeah. 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 No, it was, it's interesting because um, one of the ones that was sponsored by, um, um, what was it, the uh, Office of the Chief of Special Warfare, what uh, now would be the Army Special Operations Command, was uh, Project Camelot, which was a, basically going to be a massive data mining operation uh, that the U.S. Army was embarking upon. They were going to get a lot of anthropologists, and uh, one of the uh, subsections of anthropologists they had approached were some attached to Chile when they uh, had gotten wind of uh, what exactly they were intended for. They had thrown the whistle on uh, Camelot. So it's kind of interesting that they didn't want the, the kind of a uh, Yankee imperialist sort of version of it, but they were kind of willing to go along with this uh, other version under Relinde. <laughs> mm. Yeah, interesting. So, Anyway, is, uh, as far as uh, cybernetics uh, is concerned, it has also had a vast influence on American counterculture, especially cyberculture, surprise, surprise, that emerged during the 90s. So can you get into uh, that for a moment with us, please? Absolutely. So this connection, it largely begins in the Bay Area with Stuart Brand as the central figure and his whole Earth network. So between late 60s and late 90s, he assembled a network of people and publications that together brokered a series of encounters between Bohemian San Francisco and the emerging technology hub of Silicon Valley uh, in the South. So in 1968, Brand brought members of two worlds together in the pages of one of the defining documents of the era, the Whole Earth Catalog. So in 1985, he gathered them again on what would become the most influential computer conferencing system of the decade, the whole Earth Electronic Link, or the WELL. So throughout the 80s and 90s, 
brand and other members of his network, including Kevin Kelly, Howard Rheingold, Esther Dyson, John Perry Barlow, became some of the most quoted spokespeople for a countercultural vision of the internet. In 1993, Allwood helped create the magazine that, more than any other, depicted the emerging digital world in revolutionary terms, Wired. So, Brand intersected with many of the counterculture's best and brightest, his story being that he took a series of photos of Native Americans that ended up being seen by Ken Kesey, the author of the best-selling One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and the leader of the Merry Pranksters, a seemingly ragtag bunch of hippies who just happened to be largely made up of ex-military and intelligence personnel, as was Brand, as was their house band, the Warlocks. You might have heard of them, now world famous as the Grateful Dead. So miraculously, suspiciously, they were featured in media reports and articles that basically acted as advertisements for LSD. So <laughs> the best way to get someone interested in the drug is to deny it to them. And soon after the pranksters began making a name for themselves, LSD was made illegal. Add to the, adding to the mystique of the drug in the same way like magazine articles on magic mushrooms had done a few short years before. So to delve a little deeper into the counterculture, cybernetics connected with it on several levels. Uh, perhaps the most obvious was an interest in the brain and the mind. Uh, which led to experiments in the fields of strobes and biofeedback. Uh, at another level, cybernetics was simply odd with its chemical and biological computers, synthetic brains, interactive art pieces, developed largely outside traditional academic corporate sponsorship on an amateur basis in a practitioner's free time. But Brand came to appreciate cybernetics as an intellectual framework and as a social practice. He associated both with alternative forms of communal organization, as I just mentioned. Uh, he traveled with and between several communities, uh, cybernetics, uh, including Macy Foundation, uh, Macy Conference members, Bateson, Gregory, that is, uh, Margaret Mead, and Hans von Foster, computing, uh, Engelbert, uh, I don't know these people's first names, <laughs> Kay, Nelson, and Nigger Ponte, and of course, the counterculture, Ken Kesey, the Mary Franksters, and other communards. Uh, so John Markov chronicled how the 60s counterculture shaped the personal computer industry. So focusing on LSD in Silicon Valley, where he describes Brand and Engelbart experimenting with it. Uh, Ted Nelson reports that acid guru Timothy Leary introduced him to Heinz von Falster, uh, Macy's uh, conference member, and also founder of Second Order Cybernetics and the head of the Illinois Biological Computer Lab. So Brand's introduction to Bohemian culture began earlier while he was in the army working as a military photographer. So on his time off, he got to know the New York art scene and he became involved with uh, OSCO, which was an artist collabor collaborative where he worked as a photographer. So he, he states the artists I worked with in New York City in 61 to 64, were reading Wiener closely. Uh, so in 68, Brand published the first Whole Earth Catalog. It's a Bible for the counterculture, collection of reviews and recommendations providing access to tools promising intimate personal power, power of the individual to conduct his own education, 
find his inspiration, shape his own environment, and share his adventure with whoever is interested. Decades later, Steve Jobs famously summed it up as one of the Bibles of my generation. It was all made with typewriters, scissors, and Polaroids. It was like Google in paperback form 35 years before Google. It was idealistic and overflowing with neat tools and great notions. I actually have a copy and I, I do treasure it. It's really fun to look through. <laughs> it's, it's like nothing else. It's, it's really cool. So I can't fault Brand for his ingenuity and his creativity. Um, however, the overriding message uh, uh, leaves a bit to be desired. Uh, anyway, um, around this time, uh, Brand made contact with uh, John Brockman, uh, who, who is an American literary agent, and he specializes in scientific literature. So he established the Edge Foundation. It's an organization that brings together leading edge thinkers across a broad range of scientific and technical fields. Kind of sounds like cybernetics. Uh, so Brockman's kind of a fascinating figure. Um, he kind of is at the edges of the cybernetic community ever since the late 60s. Uh, he intersected with uh, the Andy Warhol group, the, the factory uh, scene in New York uh, in the late 60s. He was actually, <laughs> he, um, <laughs> He's on the promotional materials for the Monkees film that they made, the psychedelic movie Head. Uh, and he uh, worked on... Yes, uh, Head is uh, one of my favorite guilty pleasures for psychedelic uh, films. And I think Jack Nicholson wrote the screenplay for it, too, so you can't really beat it. Sure did. Yep, he's in it for about seven seconds, too. <laughs> the scene with Zappa, when the scene just falls apart. <laughs> There's Nicholson, like, with a script in his hand. It's like, holy crap. Uh, uh, but anyway, um, Brockman, see, it's one thing I do love about this research. You always find something new. So he has an association with ah, Jeffrey Epstein. So in an interview with Prince Andrew, <laughs> dated November 17th, 2019, BBC reporter Emily Mat Maitlis mentioned that both Andrew and John Brockman attended an intimate dinner at Jeffrey Epstein's mansion to celebrate his release from prison for charges which stem from at least a decade of child sex trafficking. His presence at Jeffrey Epstein's mansion was corroborated by Brockton himself uh, in emails published in 2019. Uh, he uh, had these famous literary dinners held during the TED conferences, which were for a number of years after Epstein's conviction almost entirely funded by Epstein as documented in his annual tax filings. So this allowed Epstein to mix with scientists, startup icons, and other tech billionaires. And as uh, Chris Knowles has pointed out, you notice that a lot of that comic book science fiction junk science died with Epstein. Very interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> Another thing, too, is I, if I remember correctly, I think Brockman and or Brand um, were uh, Epstein's inroads as well to the MIT Media Lab, which he also uh, funded pretty substantially. And again, there's MIT again, and uh, the Media Lab was also kind of considered a 
sort of part of the whole lineage going back to the rad lab and the lincoln lab and all this other kind of stuff as well so um the, the dean had to step down right then he take uh, yeah 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 he did if i'm saying that right dean whoever runs the show uh, yeah i know yours and whoever was heading yeah. the uh the mit media lab yeah and then yeah. of course i mean another guy uh we should put a point on is what's his name it's 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 how salvador pool gosh i know i'm butchering that right now but he was the Oh, the one of the major figures in the company, Simulmatics, and uh, also at the what was it, the Center for International Policy or whatever the big foreign policy think tank was at uh, MIT during the time. Uh, Simulmatics was sort of a proto version of Cambridge Analytica, and uh, a lot of mm-hmm. the people involved with it were big on some of these projects that you know talked about earlier, like Camelot, and then there was also Cambridge, which uh, JCR Licklider was involved with. Why he was uh, you know, uh, involved with ARPA and the behavioral sciences program and all that good stuff. Um, but Poole was also a major um, uh, philosopher in terms of mass communications theory. He's actually credited uh, partially with sort of envisioning the contemporary internet and the sort of culture with the message boards and emails and all this other kind of stuff. But um, he actually had a rather uh, enormous influence on brand and sort of the whole, you know, milieu around uh, the MIT Media Lab. So, you know, that's kind of, again, this other sort of uh, strange nexus with MIT and the cybernetics movement and uh, cyber culture and um, also pedophilia. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Mm -mm. Tangled web, but it's it's endlessly fascinating. It Mm. is. It is certainly that. That is for sure. All right. So what links do cybernetics have to mimetics, Philip? So mimetics uh, at one time was actually called a growth industry in U.S. military operations. Uh, This is taken from a uh, military field manual. So attacking an ideology is among the most difficult assaults known to conventional warfare. Practitioners, ideologies, are based on transcendent ideas and are inherently complex military problems. Ideologies are at a minimum, very difficult to eradicate, kinetically, highly dynamic, garner support for often undetectable reasons. Sorry, I'm reading this in a weird cadence. (laughs) Contain both tangible and intangible attributes, generate visceral enmity, compel non-combatants to take up arms, influence strategic, operational, and tactical relationships, and in the simplest form, present a daunting challenge for the most militarily trained conventional forces. Tomorrow's U.S. military must approach warfighting with an alternate mindset that is prepared to leverage all elements of national power to influence the ideological spheres of future enemies by engaging them with alternate means, memes, to gain advantage. So memes, um, when Richard Dawkins created them, he saw them as units of cultural transmission or coined the term, I should say, a unit of imitation. So said another way, they're bits of cultural information transmitted and replicated throughout populations and or societies. So the principal method- I could interject for a second here, but- um... Absolutely, you know, it's, it really is fascinating. I mean, in the way that Dawkins really conceived this, because, um, you know, he was 
basically, you know, he'd begin with the discussion of DNA and how it's, in some ways, it's inadequate to explain the inheritance that civilizations and cultures have, because obviously, after so many generations, a lot of, uh, you know, the DNA from one particular ancestor, or another, you know, can be almost, uh, you know, I mean, it's minuscule, it's almost clearly dissipated. And, uh, you know, in the case of something like the, the Roman Empire, for instance, which was built up by the Latin peoples, I mean, the Latin peoples almost totally exterminated themselves, uh, I believe, during the first century BC, during the, you know, epic civil wars that the Roman Empire had. Uh, you know, it's you're not really talked about as so much. Um, but, you know, this was just a, a really crazy time. I mean, that span of about 100 years, you had the... Uh, first series of civil wars between Gaius Maris and Sulla. Um, and then later, of course, the right famous ones between Caesar or actually, no, no. Then there was the, what was it? Um, the triumphant or something like that with Caesar and Pompey and Crassus and oh gosh. Anyway, th there were like four or five major periods of civil wars. A lot Whoa. of people died. Huge chunks of like Italy were just totally depopulated because of these civil wars but wow. the roman culture is still very much with us to this day even though the latin mm -hmm. peoples i mean you know have largely just been totally eradicated and have been for quite a number of years i mean probably even well before the roman empire itself collapsed i mean really it continued though through memes principally transferred through religion to boot which is always a uh um, an especially affected vassal uh, for memes to put them in a spiritual uh -huh. context, to put it mildly. But so yeah, DNA dissolves, the DNA fades, but culture meme memes yes, stays infectious. It does indeed. Oh, mm -hmm. anyway, you were, I know you were going somewhere, Philip. I didn't mean to. I don't know. Um, just uh, the fact that some argue that memes operate by the strength of their meaning and that their fitness is analogous to Darwinian theory. Hence, only the strongest and the fittest memes survive. Uh, so others have argued that memes transmit and replicate based on the social, economic, and cognitive nature of the receiving host and not attributed to the meme's inherent strength and fitness. Um, memes is, uh, I went down a meme rabbit hole for about 18 months and uh, I took everything back and kind of merged it in with my cybernetics because I see a lot of parallels. Uh, but I could like, I could go on for way too long <laughs> about me. Yeah, it is a, a fun topic. That is for sure. Mm. All right. So how has cybernetics been revived in recent years under the guise of quote, converging technologies? So in 2002, and you can, I actually purchased one of these. They're like a textbook uh, that was, uh, you know, for government employees uh, called the Technologies for Improving Human Performance. So it was, it was commissioned by the National Science Foundation and the Department of Commerce. It contains descriptions and commentaries on the state of science and technology and on the combined field of nanotechnology, biotech, infotech, and cognitive science. Uh, it's got some major con contributors to the fields uh, writing within. Um, the potential uses of these technologies focuses on improving health and overcoming disability. 
as well as ongoing work on planned applications of human enhancement technology in the military and in rationalization of the human machine interface in industrial settings. Uh, so it's, it's very, like I said, it, it is a textbook that uh, it's basically a blueprint for um, how uh, it's desirable to merge uh, biology with technology and the benefits that we can reap thereof. Um, I had it first as a PDF. I mean, it's still uh, published on the internet for free. So anyone can look at it. Technologies for Improving Human Performance from 2002. I think it's on the Department of Commerce website, but uh, it it reads like uh, a science fiction procedural, I guess you could say. It's dry, dr very dry reading. I, I can't say I've read it through, but it's in my little cybernetics library. <laughs> so the next subject is not dry. You guys are going to love this one. All right. So how has cybernetics influenced the policies of George Sorzos? So Soros, uh, his reflexivity theory, it connects with ideas in, uh, in cybernetics with economics, finance, and political science. Uh, so he credits reflexivity for, you know, his, for his success. And it's now increasingly known in the systems and cybernetics community. So in the Traditional social sciences, this theory is known and used by people in finance more than pure econ ec economists. Uh, but Soros uses a participatory, not a purely descriptive theory of social systems. He studied with Karl Popper at the London School of Economics. Uh, so he's worked to implement Popper's ideas of open societies in many countries around the world. Uh, Soros uses Popper's idea of conjecture and refutations to guide his investments in social interventions. He points out in social systems, there's two processes, observation and participation. The natural sciences require only observation. The idea of the observer, the observer as having an impact on what is happening in any given situation loops back to second order cybernetics popularized by the aforementioned heinz wein Foster. And I should interject at this point. Uh, one of the main sources I, I go to is it's a German film. Uh, it's called The Net, or the German title is Das Netz, N-E-T-Z. But uh, it's it started as a documentary about the Unabomber, and it became a documentary on cybernetics. And a lot of these key figures are interviewed uh, that we just spoke about. Uh, and Hans, Heinz von Forster is one of them. Um, and he's fascinating. He's, he's like a Bond villain, but he's like so positive. He's in the last years of his life in the film. He's like 99 years old uh, with a nurse and he speaks in a thick Austrian accent. But the stuff that he's seen as part of the Macy conferences, he designed radar apparatus for the Nazis <laughs> until he was liberated by the allies. And then he came to New York and he was in the, he, chaired the macy like so, conferences it's so um, weird how much like radar see i don't i don't understand it but radar just seems like it turns up in a lot of this stuff for the, some reason done it though absolutely absolutely 
Um, but I digress. Um, back to um, Mr. Soros. So um, in 1974, he advocated including the observer in the domain of science. So he called this inquiry uh, classical scientific theories operate in the realm of variables and ideas. Uh, although most work in economics describes social systems in terms of variables, he uses all four methods, variables, ideas, groups, and events. Uh, so his analysis of social systems are more holistic than purely economic uh, analysis. So reflexivity is the process of shifting back and forth between description and action. Uh, so combining perception and action yields reflexivity and uh, second order cybernetics. So his theories expand finance and economics to include the perceptual bias of participants. So he also suggests a way to anticipate major political changes. Reflexivity theory provides links between cybernetics and economics, finance and political science. So reflexivity, which can be thought of as positive feedback between cognition and participation can be found in other social science fields as well. But for someone that understands the ebb and flow of these factors, then, you know. Another point to um, give a shout out to uh, the great Christopher Knowles of the Secret Sun, um, you know, who has uh, compellingly suggested that um, Sorzos uh, may be uh, used on occasion by uh, certain intelligence services uh, to mount uh, queue, coups uh, in other countries. And mm. certainly if he is uh, skilled in cybernetic principles, that would uh, make him quite ideal for that. Again, um, you know, to give the listener a little bit of a perspective on like what, we're, what I'm getting at here. I would again urge you guys to go back to the third season of Westworld. Um, you know, again, it's on the one hand showing how negative feedback loops are used as forms of social control within a society and a, uh, the protagonists in the third season of Westworld are effectively trying to generate positive feedback loops that will be destabilizing and bring down the social order. And this is, you know, I think what you're kind of suggesting of potentially, well, I know you weren't suggesting coups, but I mean, I think, you know, taking the context of what uh, Chris has suggested with that and based on what you're telling us here, Philip, I mean, you could see why Sorzos has had so much success over the years, to put it mildly. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Carl right. Popper, I, I did a bit of a deep dive on him a few years ago. I don't have those notes with me right now, but um, uh, a a brilliant tactician and, uh, you know, legendary thinker. So if he was his protege, then. Yeah, that is definitely an interesting aspect of Pomper, or I mean, excuse me, sources. Well, it's an interesting aspect of both of them, regardless. All right, Philip, to wrap up, let's explore these Macy's conferences that we've been uh, hinting at throughout here for a moment. This really gets into the dark side of cybernetics, as though we haven't gotten dark enough already with Sorzos <laughs> and the coups and the pedophiles. But anyway, as the military and intelligence <laughs> community adopted and co-opted much of what was done 
at these conferences for the purposes of mind control and other such pursuits. So what can you tell us about this milieu? Well, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a mysterious topic, but it's also one that if you can add two plus two, you can, you know, come, come to a pretty firm conclusion. Um, the first meeting was titled hypnosis and cerebral inhibition. And those proceedings are not published. Um, I did publish their 46 to 50 proceedings, but uh, they read like stereo instructions. <laughs> they are very hard to read, actually more like uh, uh, <laughs> cyclotron instructions, very math heavy, uh, you know, above my pay grade. But yeah, the first uh, Macy's conference uh, brought in <laughs> an FBI hypnosis interrogation specialist. Oh, Erickson, very close. Oh, yes. Milton Erickson, yeah, yeah. Erickson, yes, FBI asset, Milton Erickson. So he, he oh, presented- also, the, to point out here right quick too, Erickson sure. was also kind of considered to be the, uh, the grandfather of neuro-linguistic programming. Interesting. I've often suspected was uh, linked into the cybernetic movement. Uh, oh, yes, what you were saying for both. sure. Awesome. Um, so early on, um, Lawrence Kuby, uh, he tested, he was a, a Macy's Foundation member and he studied under Sir Sherrington, who was a British specialist on uh, hypnosis. And uh, he wrote a paper called The Experimental Induction of Neurotic Reactions in Man that <laughs> implanted psychotic states uh, on prisoners with hypnosis. Um, so he, he brought Milton Erickson to the first Macy's conference. And uh, this is what they talked about. We don't have a record of it. Erickson would later contract with the CIA and the FBI. Uh, so hypnosis is just, it's so poo-poo today. It's, it's, it's amazing. Like I remember when I was a kid, my mom, telling me how hard it was to hypnotize people and it's always been played down but if they took that much time and effort to look into it they looked at it twice <laughs> the second conference featured arthur liddell discipline of pavlov uh, on conditioned response and then they began what they called the man machine project uh, so there were 10 Macy conferences in all uh, the brain computer, they viewed it as that they both worked with inputs and outputs. So interface should be possible. Um, and that's uh, what they studied. So uh, we have a, a litany of, of people whose names continue to come up you know, when you research this stuff, um, Von Neumann, John Von Neumann, he worked on the Manhattan Project and he developed game theory during the Cold War. Uh, so you can thank him for the arms race. Um, 
Game theory pit. was actually an influence on uh, Discordianism as well. Really? Was. Did not know that. Yes, 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 yes. So, so yeah, I bought the Principia Discordia in my 20s and I thought I was a Discordian. <laughs> but there is so much to it. Uh, listening to your shows on the subject and reading out of your at least book, uh, books, it's, uh, there's, it's, it's quite broad in depth. But I digress. Um, Kurt Lewin, he was an OSS agent and he was director of MIT Center for Group, Dyna Group Dynamics. Uh, he also uh, did work with the Frankfurt School and the Tavistock Institute in Britain. Heinz von Foster, uh, of course, I mentioned him earlier. Uh, he was in the infamous Vienna Circle. They were uh, a group of Austrian scientists who uh, were looking into a lot of this stuff, you know, before the war. He did, you know, as we mentioned, radar experiments for the Nazis. Uh, and he actually developed the quantum theory of memory. Harold Amerson, Abramson, who introduced LSD, the Macy Group. He also the work uh, to uh, participate in the uh, MK Ultra experiments, and uh, he was uh, also the, uh, the I believe, psychiatrist that uh, Frank Olson was uh, taken to shortly before his um, quote-unquote suicide. That's right. Um, That's yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Also, I should point out to Milton Erickson uh, was uh, he was involved with um, Project Artichoke uh, directly. So both of those guys were linked uh, to the different behavior modification programs. Yeah, the, the connections to MK Ultra are 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 numerous. Uh, That's another area that I've done a lot of reading into. Um, Particularly, well, now I view him as more of a fall guy, but Ewan Cameron, uh, of course, he wasn't in the Macy's conference, but it's just a telling story that a fellow that was the president of the American, Canadian, and the World Psychiatric Associations at one time, hailed as a leader, and then just discarded, like, as the fall guy for Ultra, and now he's seen as, like... <laughs> just this it's just unreal you know the fall from grace and well, see, uh, the, the interesting thing about that is a lot of cameron's stuff was really based upon like the work that was done by the man who was his boss at the time donald hebb i believe was his name hebb. Um, yeah hebb i mean see hebb yes. i mean you know he later distanced himself from cameron because they were both at mcgill and like i said i believe he was technically cameron's boss he could have theoretically stopped these experiments at any given time that he uh denounced as barbaric in latter years but uh, i mean obviously he didn't really do a whole lot but he was the one who had really made a lot of the the quote-unquote breakthroughs with isolation and sensory deprivation realizing just what effective tools they are of just, you know totally destroying the human mind and consciousness mm -hmm. i mean uh, yeah had worked on um bluebird yeah, yeah, he was involved in the early stuff. And then in theory, he distanced himself while they gave Cameron all this money while Hebb still continued to be his boss and was largely working off of Hebb's original concepts in isolation and taking just taking them though to levels that uh, Hebb was in theory not willing to go to. 
Uh, but another interesting thing I'll tell you about Hebb that's not really remarked upon a lot is um, he was also quite influential on JCR Licklider, who was also a cyberneticist and a major figure in developing the ARPANET and who also oversaw ARPA's behavioral science program, which uh, did so much work on some of those predictive modeling things we've been talking about earlier. So absolutely. The, the, this whole milieu is just very, very incestuous, folks. Um, it really was, and still is, for that matter, quite frankly. All right, so two oh. other interesting ones I can kind of think of uh, along kind of these similar lines that were involved with the Macy's conferences were um, the One Point Husband and Wife duo of uh, Gregory Bateson and uh, Margaret Mead, right? Absolutely. Uh, very interesting power couple there. Um, they they spent the war um, as members of the Committee for National Morale. So it was a U.S. Presidential Advisory Committee. Uh, it was uh, authorized by uh, Roosevelt uh, organize and analyze the nation's overall morale during the war, study propaganda efforts by the Axis powers and recommend appropriate strategies in response. So um, they were both members uh, as well as, uh, uh, was it Ed? Oh, Lawrence Kuby was also a member. Uh, a couple other Macy members, Eric Erickson, I'm not as familiar with him, but yes, uh, they, um, they're, their figure looms large. Uh, not only were they in the, the Macy's conference, but um, Bateson was, uh, his quote uh, is repeated ad infinitum of cy uh, cybernetics may be the biggest bite out of the apple of knowledge since Adam and Eve. <laughs> uh, so uh, they studied native populations from a distance. Uh, before the war uh, in New Guinea, I believe. Um, yeah, they were anthropologists, I think, primarily. Yes, yes. So that kind of makes you wonder um, when uh, their later work on, you know, the cross-disciplinary stuff and the MK Ultra connections and... Uh, well, I should also kind of point out, too, I mean, this is kind of, you know, when we're getting into this period here of the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, when the Macy's conferences, well, they kind of wound down by the early 60s, but the 50s was kind of their heyday. But I mean, this this coincided with just the spending frenzy from the uh, the CIA and the Pentagon on the social sciences. I mean, just incredible amounts of money were pumped into things like anthropology uh you know sure. all this other kind of stuff i mean eventually this uh, sort of led to the you know creation of like behavioral sciences uh which is what yeah, you know right. kind of alluded to ultimately sort of spawned a lot of the more contemporary things like palantir and cambridge analytica but i mean it was all sort of mm -hmm. interconnected with a lot of the you know funding that was going into the social sciences of various kinds uh psychology yeah. anthropology philosophy even to some extent i mean all of this though was kind of uh, also being done with the technocratic eye of uh seeing how it could be used to predict human behavior and uh sure. for that matter and yeah, many, many members of the uh, macy's conferences sat on the board of the international committee for mental hygiene 
including Mead and Bateson, uh, as well as John Rowling's Reese, who ran the Tavistock Institute. And mental hygiene went global post-war. Uh, they had a conference in London in 48, and they called it the Global Manhattan Project, kicked off post-war. Um, they had a, uh, a booklet, Mental Health and World Citizenship. Uh, many of the cybernetics conference members attended World Federation of Mental Health. Uh, their group's motto barred from UNESCO, and they had a branch to study physiological psychology. Uh, very interesting. Yeah. No, it's, uh, like I said, it's definitely a fascinating milieu that was gathered around this movement. Oh, all sure. right. All right, Philip, do you yes, uh, have anything else to uh, add here as we sign off? I think we've covered a lot tonight, Steve. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, folks. Well, hopefully you guys have enjoyed this one as much as we have here. Uh, cybernetics is a very crucial topic. It's everywhere, and uh, it's uh, really at the heart of uh, our modern world, for better or worse, and oftentimes worse. <laughs> and with those thoughts, we will sign off for now. As always, good night and good luck to you all.